Our New Testament reading will be in 1 Peter this morning. Again, we'll be continuing our study. Now, if you'll open to 1 Peter with me, chapter 1. We'll be reading a good portion of the chapter this morning because we're coming now to the conclusion of some of the thoughts of the chapter. You know, when we talk about living in fear, which is the title of the sermon, it's hard today not to think about what's going on in our cities in this country. I saw new pictures from L.A. It looks like a wasteland. Garbage and desolation everywhere. You think of Seattle. A career criminal is in charge of reforming the police. You think of hate leaders preaching death to the police and death to the white people. You think of all that's going on with the takeover of America by the far left, and you might be tempted to live in fear. Some of that is you know, healthy, natural fear. Even when I was young, living in Boston, there were places where I could not go. Uh, one time we went to get my car, which had been stolen from an impound lot, and the police, doing a little bit of racial profiling, pulled me over, started yelling and screaming, what do you stupid idiots think you're doing? You want to be dead? Like, we're not here to buy drugs, officer. We're going to pick up my stolen car. Okay, go this way, go straight there, do not stop. (laughs) Because in Boston in those days, there were places you couldn't go. And a natural fear would tell you, I don't go to that part of town because I'm not going to be treated well. I'm going to die. You know, it's just like you don't jump off a tall building, you don't walk into a fire. Natural fear is good and healthy sometimes. But that natural fear can turn into a sinful fear when it's irrational. You know, people who are afraid to go out even though they live in a safer area outside these big cities. Um, People who are afraid to do what they need to do. People who are afraid, even in church, to say, no, social justice is not Christianity. Marxism is not Christianity. You know, the social justice is about saying, well, because some white people sin, then all white people are guilty of all the sins of all white people throughout all of history. And any random white person you find can be punished for any crime real or imagined they've ever committed. And the same with the police. Um, you know, that's, that's not Christian, and people should be willing to stand up and say what's going on in this country is evil. Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. You know, we need to stand up and do our duty as Christians. And that's been part of the the focus of our midweek service, where we're going through the book on the fear factor or courage, depending on which version you have, talking about these things. But that's not the kind of fear that's in mind here. This is the fear that overcomes those kinds of fears. This is talking about the fear of the Lord. This is our duty. We must be living in the fear of the Lord. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. None of the pleasures, none of the good things, none of the bad things in life are really as important as remembering to fear God, to walk in his commandments throughout our life. And that's where we'll be coming to today. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 21 primarily. But we're going to start reading in 1 Peter at verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. But by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, that, that like the lamb without spot or blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope may be in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage about living in fear of you, pray, Lord, that we should walk carefully, listen carefully, think carefully, and come really to an understanding of what this is all about. We ask, Lord, for your grace in our study in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's interesting that he says we should walk in the fear of the Lord, in fear. 
that he calls us to that. And he says, the reason for that is you're calling on him as father. God is the father of Jesus Christ. As we know, we read in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only there is only begotten Son. Verse 18, we see the same word. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In these passages, we see that Jesus is the Son, but he is not created. He is the creator of all things. Nothing was made without him making it, which means, you know, he isn't made. Begotten means not that he was created, but that that was his place within the Trinity in the triune Godhead. Uh, we, we know that same word that for only, only begotten shows up in John 3.16 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's an important thing for us to think about, that he is the only begotten son of God. He's expressing their relationship within the Trinity in a manner in which we can understand. You know, what person who has but one child thinks lightly of the child? This is my only child. This is the one who represents me. This is important to me. And that's showing us the great importance of his place, but also showing the relationship that exists between them. But we're not talking here about Father of Christ. We're talking about God as our Father. And pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is how Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. We are able to call upon him as a father, the believer's father, or as Peter calls us at the beginning of this chapter, the elect. The father of the elect is God, the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus taught us that, and we need to remember it, and we're told by John in John, John chapter 1, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Or I'm sorry, John himself. John the Baptist is later. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so what is in mind in this passage when he talks about our Father calling upon him as our father, is that God really is the father of the elect, of his people, of his chosen ones. This is of importance to understand his point here about walking in holiness, walking in obedience, and walking in the fear of the Lord. We have him as a father. And as his children, we're to behave as his children. In Galatians 4, 3 through 7, he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
But when fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Our redemption, which is talked about by Peter in this passage, is what makes us children of God. We, we receive through that redemption, adoption, and become his children. And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that we're no longer slaves but a son, and if sons, then heirs through God. So we have an inheritance, which he has spoken about earlier in this chapter, an inheritance in heaven, a glorious inheritance that does not fade, that cannot perish, cannot be corrupted. And that inheritance comes from our Father, whom we call upon. And we have that great privilege of calling upon him as Father. Remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. For which of you, if he has a son who asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or who asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you who then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Because we have been adopted through this redemption in Christ, because we are children now of God, we have a right to ask him. And we have an expectation that he will hear us. But notice in our passage, we're talking about why we should fear the Lord. Fear him because we call upon him as father and he judges impartially according to our deeds. As obedient children, we're told in verses 14 through 16, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God will judge all of us according to our deeds. Now, many people seem to think that God is this doddering, doting old fool who will say, oh, that's okay, pat your head, and I accept you just as you are, and I love you just as you are. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what Peter is saying here. There will be a judgment. Nothing we do can sway him, not our cuteness, not our desirability, not our passion for religion, not our good works. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says to the Jews in verses 16 through 17, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of God and Lord of lords, great and mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. There's nothing we can offer to God to get off the hook. We must pay in full for our sins. We read in Deuteronomy as well, in 30, chapter 32, verses 3 through 6, the song of Moses, he sings, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. God is a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. He is described as a God of justice. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot overlook the corruption that is in us. He cannot pat us on the head and say, that's okay. We're told to fear him because he will judge justly according to our deeds, impartially. 
Whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, whether we have been a Christian since birth or converted on our deathbed, the judgment for sin will always be the same. Paul warns us in Colossians 3:23 and following that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. The threat throughout the Old and the New Testament is God will judge impartially. All of our sin, all of our corruption, all of our wrongdoing. If we sin, we shall die. And therefore, if we are calling upon God as Father, we should keep that in mind. We don't go before him and say, you know, God, I'm doing pretty good. What do you think? How about uh, raising my inheritance? (laughs) We go before him on our knees and say, God, I have sinned against you in this way and in that way. And that is the fear of the Lord, which is healthy for us. You know, oftentimes we think, oh, you know, love casts out fear and perfect love. There should be no fear. And we love him perfectly and he loves us perfectly. Well, that's fear of wrath, perhaps. But the fear of offending him, the fear of being judged as wicked by him, the fear of him being disappointed in us, that fear should be there in our lives and in our hearts. Yes, we call upon a God who judges impartially, and he will judge all things. We read that since he has called upon us impartially, called upon us to judge us impartially, that we should live in fear, he says, throughout our exile. Now, this is not our home. This is not our end. This is not our purpose. For for many people, in many churches even, the whole purpose of man is to enjoy glory and pleasure and happiness in this world and wealth and prosperity. Uh, but our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever And in this world, all the things of this world, all the pleasures of the flesh, all the desires in the life, the pride of what we see, all of these things are worldly and they don't belong to us or our kingdom because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we are going to live there forever. And we are warned to live in fear through our exile for good reason. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, verses 11 and 12. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence the earth and the sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The idea being that God knows everything we have done, be it in public or in private or even in secret or only in our heart. He knows. And at the judgment, we will be judged for that. We should fear that. He knows everything. It isn't one of those things, well, as long as you know, mom doesn't know or dad doesn't know or my wife doesn't know or my husband doesn't know, it's okay. I'll, I'll be fine. God knows. Now you might say, well, the believer doesn't have to fear his punishment. Really. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. It's a long passage, but I want to read it. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now again, the holiness that Peter has just talked about comes into play in this. Discipline leads us to holiness. If we discipline ourselves, we need less discipline from our Father. But if we are undisciplined in sin, he will discipline us, even though we are believers. I remember somebody telling me that, well, God has said, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ, therefore we need not fear his discipline. Condemnation and discipline are not the same. Condemnation, casting into hell, is for those who do not know the Lord. Discipline is also for them, but when discipline has run out, condemnation awaits. If you look at the Old Testament law, the rebellious child who kept sinning and kept causing trouble, the parents were to punish him. They were to spank him, they were to flog him, they were to beat him with rods, that would break bones. And while he was laying in bed with broken bones recovering, he could think about his sin. But if there's nothing the parents could do to get the child to turn, he was to be taken to the gates and turned over to the town, the officials, and he was to be stoned. Condemnation. We don't have to fear condemnation, but we have to worry about judgment and discipline. Of course, if your sins show that you're unsaved, you have even much more to fear. Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 6 says, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice, he is faithfulness, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. But it continues. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked in a twisted generation. Do not thus replay the Lord, your foolishness and senseless people. Or do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he our father who created you, who made you and established you? Saying that there's a portion of Israel, which was not Israel. There's a portion of the church that is not the church because they are not really believing. They are not really faithful. How do they know that? Well, by their crookedness, by their 
blemishes by their unwillingness to repent and turn from their corruption. We are told in, by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 15, to examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. You know, there's a warning, even in the New Testament, that just because we say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean we are saved. Remember that passage in Matthew 7 we've looked at. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, there is that fear also in the fear of the Lord. If my sin is unrepentant, if I am unwilling to turn from it, if I hate what God has said and want to do what I think is better for me, I should fear that I do not even know him. Because we will face him one day. I was told a long time ago by a pastor that, no, no, the great white throne judgment was completed on the cross. There's no judgment, no condemnation for Christians. There's no judgment for Christians. And so well, what about 2 Corinthians 5? 10 and 11, we must all be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now we teach that message. You will stand before God in his judgment seat and he will judge you for your sins. And guess what? If your sins are showing that you never believed, you should have dealt with that in this life. Because at the judgment, it's too late. Of course, fear of the Lord is not just about consequence. And indeed, fear of the Lord is not primarily about consequence. Fear of the Lord should be about reverence. His awesomeness. You remember in Job, I love, you read verses, or chapters 38 and 39. I can't read them all now. I'd read the whole thing for you. It's one that starts off, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what words basis sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. He goes on and on to talk about all the great and mighty and awesome things that God has done. Think about it though. Who is God? Is he a man? He is the creator of all things. The more you know about the world, the more you study physics and understand the laws of that govern this world, and you know that God created them, the more in awe of his mind you should be. And it's hard to wrap my brain around even the simple things we teach children when you really think about it. But the complexities, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The more we look into that, the more we see the greatness and the awesomeness of God. He created the world. He created the laws of physics. 
He created everything. He created us. He caused all things to be able to reproduce after their kind, all living things. God has done this in his greatness, in his awesomeness, in his, you know, his, his understanding is infinite. His reasoning is infinite. It's so far beyond what we can understand that it should cause us to fall on our knees in awe and to be afraid. You know, what are we? We are but clay molded by the potter. We should stand in great awe of everything he did. And that really is the core of the fear of the Lord. We are not standing before a man saying, well, I have to be afraid of what he will do to me. We are standing before the creator of all things, the judge of all things, the one who is perfect and upright, who has no injustice, who will not wink at sin, who is flawless. And we stand before him realizing that you know, all, even of our righteousness, is but filthy rags. There is no good thing in us. And in that way, we should stand in awe, even knowing that he has loved us, even knowing that he has sent his son to die for us. The awe of who he is and his holiness and his perfections and his greatness should cause us to live in fear. Not fear of some evil person beating us, but fear of a perfect and holy God and his righteousness and his justice. Psalm 34 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And what is the fear of the Lord but acknowledging his right to tell us what to do and making it our goal to do it for his pleasure, for his glory? That is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is good. Yes, the wicked are terrified by the judgment of the Lord. Revelation 6, the sky vanishes, and it's rolled up like a scroll. The mountains and islands are removed from their place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the faith of him the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? They know the fear of the Lord different than us. And that ultimately is why they hate the Jews and hate the Christians, hate believers, hate the church, hate him, because they are terrified of his wrath. But for us, the fear of the Lord is different. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 1.7 Now the Psalms and the Proverbs speak much of the fear of the Lord as a good thing. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than fine gold. Sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. 
Psalm 19, verses 9 and 10. You know, the fear of the Lord involves his commandments because that is how we know what he wants and what he dislikes. That is how we know how we should live our lives. Proverbs says many things, and I'll just quickly skim through some of them. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. Hatred for evil is part of the fear of the Lord. That was Proverbs 8.13. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowing God is part of the fear of the Lord. You know, he, is, he doesn't have to be some distant thing that you don't understand what he wants. I mean, have you ever worked for a boss like that? I have no idea what this guy wants. He's just angry all the time because it ain't right. <laughs> you know, it's not like that with the Lord. We know what's right. It's written right here. All we have to do is study it, read it, know him. And we know what he wants. And we don't need to fear as much his displeasure because we know what to do. If we don't do it, then we need to fear his chastisement as he chastises us as sons. It's part of the process of sanctification. Right? Uh, Proverbs 10.27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14.26 and 27, The fear of the Lord has... In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And again, the fear of the Lord there being tied indirectly to knowing God and knowing the word of God. And again, Proverbs 23, 17 and 18. Let, you, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. We spoke about that earlier in the chapter. We have that hope, that living hope, that Christ's resurrection shows that the penalty has been paid, and we too will be raised from the dead. And thus, we have that inheritance waiting for us. So don't envy sinners and all the good that they have but continue to fear the Lord because the day, the future will come. Uh, that was a profound lesson for people in Cambodian countryside who saw, you know, why am I working so hard to do right before God when the thieving, cheating scum around me are getting rich and happy and comfortable? And the answer was, you know, we do not live for this life only. Here we are strangers and pilgrims. We are in exile waiting to return to our kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, with God. And so as his elect, we, we should fear him because it's good, because he is awesome, and because there are consequences when we, do, when we sit against him. And he is a great and awesome God, creator, maintainer, judge of all things, and he has called upon us to fear him. Now, we should walk in fear. We're given a couple of reasons in the next few verses. But the first one, because we have been ransomed from our futile ways, inherited from our parents and our grandparents. Now, what does it mean that we are ransomed? I remember somebody telling me that God had to pay the devil to buy us back. And 
that Jesus had to die and went to hell. And in hell, he was punished by the devil. And that was what allowed us to be bought back from the devil. And my, my first thought was, where on earth does the Bible say that? Oh, you know, the prophetess who works at this other church says that. Actually, the one in the White House has said that, I believe. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. God and Satan are not equal. Satan is an angel. He was created by God. God has absolute authority and absolute power over him. He can do absolutely nothing without God's permission. And he, even in his sin, in his wickedness, in his rebellion, in his hatred for God and hatred for God's people, whether he likes it or not, he is serving God and God's purpose and God's plan. But to show just how empty that foolishness that the devil has any right to anything, you know, look at the end in Revelation 20. An angel comes down from heaven holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, and he seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit. What power did he have over another angel? None. The angel just comes down, grabs him, throws a chain on him. Done. He has no power to resist. It says he had to be there for a thousand years, and when the thousand years was ended, jumping down to verse 7, Satan's released from prison. He goes out, he deceives the nations. They march and cover the entire plains and making war against God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. He makes great war. Do we have to fight hard? Is it a difficult battle? No. Fire. Take him, throw him in the lake, let him be tormented forever. He is just a fallen angel, a corrupt being, but a created one. And God has absolute power over him. We're not ransomed from the devil. So what are we ransomed from? Well, the wages of sin is death. It's that fiery lake for all eternity to be punished. That's what's due How are we ransomed? Well, the penalty for sin must be paid for. If God winked upon sin and said, I'm just going to forgive their sin, it's okay. The wicked would say, you are unjust. You punish me and you don't punish them. That's not fair. Especially because some of God's children are worse than the wicked, at least before they were saved. Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. You know, the other teachers of his day would say, if you forgave Paul and you're not forgiving me, it's because that's not how it works. We're ransomed from death by the blood of Christ. You know, we read in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the law of the spirit of light have set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What was that? Well, the law told us how to live perfectly before God so that we wouldn't be guilty of sin and be killed. Uh, But our flesh was already corrupt. We weren't obeying. You know, the law was weakened in that sense and that it couldn't fulfill its purpose because of our corruption, being unwilling to do it. So what the law could not do, God has done by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
What does that mean? Well, to pay for our sins, he needed to be a man. And so he took on a real human nature. That was necessary. And in sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did God condemn sin in the flesh? Well, by taking our sins from sinful man and putting it on the sinless man. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Because if somebody did not die for our sin and pay fully for our sin, it would be unjust for him to let us come to heaven. It would be unjust for us to have forgiveness if the penalty was not paid. And that is what Paul is saying. That righteous requirement of the law, death and punishment, was fulfilled. And those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but the spirit. Because the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But read on in that Romans 3 passage. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, 23 through 26. But are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption, there's the redemption we've been talking about, that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, an atoning sacrifice, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. Now people wonder what that is talking about, if I haven't said before. Think of all the people who had faith, who died before Christ. Christ had not yet paid for their sins. But God passed over those sins, knowing that Christ would pay for them in the future. And that's all it's referring to there. This was to show his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and and the justifier of the one who had faith in Christ. And so from the first saint till the first one to die before his resurrection, or the last one to die before his resurrection, all of them, even though they died before Christ, God was waiting for Christ because he knew he would come. God can do that because he has unchangeably foreordained all the things that have come to pass from before the, even the beginning of the world. And notice, though, that propitiation is by his blood, and we'll talk about that again later. So our ransom is being ransomed from the penalty for our sin. The price had to be paid, and it was paid by Christ. Ransomed, though he says here, from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. Another one of those passages that can be a bit of a struggle to figure out. He's not meaning the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was holy. The commandment was holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans 7.12. The problem isn't the law, the problem is us. They weren't, the law was not futile in that sense. It was valuable and honorable. Before faith came, faith in the risen Christ that we can see, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed, Galatians 3:23 and following. So then the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster, as the King James says, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It, 
was our schoolmaster, our teacher, our instructor, our guardian, and that it showed us that we could not be justified by our works. That we had to look outside of ourselves for that salvation and put our hope in God and his promises. And they had those promises all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that God would do something. They didn't know what exactly. They didn't know Christ and his death and his resurrection in the beginning. It was revealed over time through the Old Testament, piece by piece. But they were going to be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, and we are no longer under a guardian for Christ Jesus. In him you are sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ, there was neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ. Notice he says, judges impartially. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile or any of the other groups that people like to make distinctions in. We will all be judged the same. And if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham offspring, heirs according to the promise. Again, tying us back into being like Abraham, children of God, who have an inheritance, have a promise. Now, this ransom from feudal ways inherited from our forefathers uh, may include the false religion of the Jews. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15. He called them hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But I would take it one step further than that and say really all religion in the world, except the worship of the one true living God and the way he is described in the Bible is futile. And you have learned it from your parents and your forefathers, but it has no effect. You know, Roman Catholicism with going and praying the rosary and giving a donation to the church to pay for sins doesn't save you. You know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, none of it saves you. Islam cannot save you. Those are all futile. And those is what, that is what he is talking about. All the ways that men have had throughout all of history and even coming in the future, they cannot save you. They are futile. And you have been ransomed from those by the blood of Christ. Uh, Peter, writing to all of, his, all of the elect throughout all time, is saying really what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very explicit and very clear. You've been ransomed from all of those things and not with silver or gold. Remember we looked at Psalm 49 verses 7 through 9. No man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on and never see the pit. No amount of gold and silver in all the world can pay for our sins. I, you know, those stories you hear about Roman Catholicism over the years. I've shared that funny one about the, uh, the gangster who had ordered to commit murder and was going knew he would die in the process, you know, paying in advance so that it would be forgiven and he could go to heaven. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. The wages of sin is death. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. Works will not be the ones to get you out either. 
silver, gold works. It should be obvious. You know, who has ever given a gift to God that he must be repaid? Romans 11:35. For from him, and 36, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Nothing can ransom us from God's wrath. Nothing can pay the price for our sins. And we have been ransomed from not just death and the foolishness of the past, but we have been ransomed to the kingdom of heaven. And so we should walk in fear of the Lord because we've been ransomed with the blood of his perfect beloved son. Verses 19 through 21. The precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish. That was what John the Baptist said in the beginning of John. Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. That's really what the sacrifices were all about reminding them that blood would be required for their sin. But their blood would never suffice. Certainly then the blood of animals would not suffice. But people started to put their hope in the animals instead of what the animals were pointing to, to the perfect lamb that was to come, the lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Without the paying of blood without the full payment of blood there would be no redemption no forgiveness you remember we talked about when we spoke of the resurrection back earlier in the book of first peter that his resurrection shows that his blood which was of infinite value was sufficient to pay for the sins of all of his people and that was why he was raised because death no longer had any hold on him oh penalty is paid i can't stay dead I can rise. And he did, and so will we. So we've been ransomed by the blood of his perfect son, the lamb without spot or blemish. And that was the way the Old Testament law was teaching and leading us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, he mentions that the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now think about that for a minute. His one offering has perfected us for all time. What do we add to that? Nothing. It's been perfected by him. You know, our life worthy of the gospel, as Paul talked about, our life of obedience as obedient children, that is not earning it, that is the result of it and the obligation that we have to live in the fear of the Lord, walk in his commandments, give him the glory and acknowledge him in all things. The Old Testament ceremonial law was leading them to that conclusion And that really is the key to this passage and the the key that explains the atonement. 
Our sins were put upon him, and he died for them. But more than that, he lived on this earth under the law, the righteous life that we have not. He did all the things he was supposed to do, and we haven't. And that is put upon us. So if you think about, we read about the books being opened in heaven, and the book of life. The book of life has our name. And the works of Christ are put over the works of sin that we have done. Our sin is crossed out. His righteousness is imputed to us. And when the book of judgment is read, we are declared innocent. We are brought to heaven to live with God forever because of his atonement, because he has redeemed us from our sin. <clears throat> now, he, he mentions to, to help focus, and I've run way out of time, but to help focus on the glory of God and as being such a key part of the fear of the Lord, he mentions that this was Christ was acknowledged with foreknowledge of God from before the foundation of the earth that he would be the perfect lamb without blemish, that he would be the sacrifice for his people, that he would be the atonement. That goes all the way back to God's plan. Before he made us, he had already decided to give his son to save us. And that is a key, and we read through Ephesians chapter 1, and all of that stuff about God's foreknowledge and plan and call, and put that together with what Peter says here. That is all in Christ. It is all decided in him before the beginning of the world. And he says, through him you are believers. Christ, as God, is the object of our faith. As mediator, he's the way to the Father by which men come to him, believe in him, lay hold of him as their God and their Lord and their Savior. And he's also the author of that faith. And he caused us to be born again, we learned earlier in the chapter in First Peter. So he raised God from the dead, gave him glory, so that our faith and our hope would be in God. Remember, if we have faith in ourselves, what happens? We eventually figure out that we're not all that, and our faith crumbles, and our life crumbles, and our hope crumbles. But if our hope is in Christ, and our faith is in him, and he has been raised from the dead, our sins are paid, and we understand the meaning of that, then we have great hope, but we also give great glory to God. What an awesome thing God has done. So the Lord... We see he is awesome, he is the creator, he is the owner, he is the sustainer, he is the Lord, he is the judge of everything, especially us. But he is also our redeemer. He sent his son, his beloved son, his only begotten son, to live the life that we have not lived and to die for the sins that we have committed. We are redemption. That was a very costly redemption. It is not a small thing that we should despise, but we should remember the price our sins cost. And really, standing before the awesome God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-holy, we should know our place. As Americans, we hate to be told that. Know your place. No, I'm as good as anyone. But we're not as good as God. Know our place before him. 
Walk in fear before him, not in terror, but in love, in awe of his glory. Read it again, Ecclesiastes 12:13. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know sometimes when we turn our face from you that we lose sight of the glory and the awesomeness and the greatness of your, your kingdom, of your Son, of yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would ever keep that image before us of your perfect awesomeness, that you are all-knowing, all-powerful, creator, owner, sustainer, and judge of all things, and that you have that place in our life as the God who saved us, the God we worship, the only God. And help us, Lord, then to walk in fear of you, fear of offending you, fear of doing wrong, fear of displeasing our beloved Father, but rather that we might glorify you in all our life, in all our deeds, and that we might enjoy you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.